15. Uh, we do have a kids class that's available every week that meets just in the back room here. And kids, you're welcome to go to that uh, this time. If you're not aware, there's also a nursery every week that meets in the room, just kind of on the back corner over here. And uh, that's uh, fully staffed. And if you've got uh, young nursery age kids, feel free to drop them off there at the nursery if you'd like. Uh, that's available for you to use. Uh, well, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this morning will be in verses 20 to 28 together. <clears throat> I think that the last couple of years uh, have certainly revealed that many people are afraid of death, and in fact, extremely afraid of death. And I, I'm not certain, but I would imagine that much of that fear has to do with an uncertainty of what lies uh, beyond the grave and about what's on the other side of that. We all have an appointment with death. I think we all know that, that everyone dies. But what is it that lies beyond the grave? What happens next? And I think that there are some who, if they knew what happened after death, if they only knew and understood what happened after death, that would lead only, uh, that, that would increase their fear. And rightfully so. And there are others who, if they knew what happened after death, they would have even greater hope. And even greater joy and confidence, their fear would be uh, diminished. And around this matter of what happens after death, some question the, the bodily resurrection of the believer. Will God's people rise again? In fact, some of the Corinthians were saying that there is no resurrection of the dead. In other words, after the Christian dies, he's not going to be raised uh, from among the dead, at least not bodily or physically. But the Bible says the very opposite. In fact, Christ's resurrection demands our own resurrection. Uh, back in chapter, or verse 13 here of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul argued, he said, listen, if there's no resurrection of the dead, if, if God's people don't rise bodily, then not even Christ himself has been raised. And Paul dogmatically states that uh, if Christ rose, we will too. Uh, but if you're like me, you, you read that and, and you look at the paragraph from, from last week and maybe go, that's awesome, but I'm not sure that I'm really following. I'm not sure that I'm logically connecting those dots. How is it that if Christ rose, then that just it logically follows that I will too? I don't understand that. That's amazing, but I just don't get it. Why is it that Christ's resurrection guarantees or demands my own resurrection if I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Can you explain that to me? And Paul says, yes. That's exactly what I'm going to do. Look at verses 20 to 28 of 1 Corinthians 15. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Just as by one man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain or, or clear that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. 
When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. This morning we're going to consider together two reasons that Christ's resurrection demands our own resurrection. What's the logic? What are the reasons for that? And here's the first one. The first reason that Christ's resurrection demands our own is because Christ and the believer are connected. Verses 20 to 23 explain uh, from a few different angles that Christ and the believer are connected inseparably as one. The believer is united to Jesus Christ. And if you're like me, you're still like, okay, that's great. I'm just not sure I get it. So help me understand. Well, this connection is like the first fruits of a full harvest. Look at verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead And then notice how Christ is described. He's called the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. First fruits are exactly that. I don't know that we really use that term much in our world world today, but they are the first fruits harvested during a harvest season. For example, at our house we have a raspberry patch. Uh, I personally love fresh fresh raspberries. Which means that right now, I'm really excited because what's going to happen over the next few weeks, the rain's going to come and it's going to come and it's going to come, uh, most likely, and it's going to get warmer and warmer and hotter and hotter. And sooner or later, what's going to happen is those raspberries are going to begin to come on the the ends of those uh, plants. And they'll start out greenish white and then they will ripen into a, a deep, dark red. And here in a few weeks, uh, one day we'll go out there and our first harvest of raspberries will be ready for the, pe- for the picking. And we will have what you might call uh, our first fruits harvest. That first batch of raspberries that we go out and pick. And then over the course of the next several weeks, we're going to go out there almost every day, maybe every other day. And we will continue to reap that same harvest of more raspberries until the full harvest has been reaped. The first fruits of harvest are both an example and a guarantee of what is yet to come. So, my first fruits raspberry harvest, you might say that it's an example of of what is going to continue to come. What the rest of my harvest will be like. In other words, if my first fruits harvest, I go out there and I harvest a a batch of raspberries. When I go out there two or three days later and I go to to see what else there is to harvest, that next harvest is going to be just like the first one. I'm not going to go out to those plants and harvest a bunch of grapes. I'm going to harvest raspberries, just like the first fruits. Also, my first fruits raspberry harvest is a guarantee or pledge of what is yet to come. There will be more coming. The very name first fruits implies that there's more to come. The idea is similar to a down payment on a house. If you purchase a home and let's say you're, you, you buy this home and you're able to put uh, 20% down on that home, that down payment, you might think of it as a, a form of a pledge or a guarantee. You plop that big lump sum down and that's a guarantee that month after month after month there's going to continue to be more and more and more payments. That's the first fruits idea. It's an example. What came in the first harvest, that's what the rest of the harvest is going to be like and it's also a guarantee of what is yet to come. So with that in mind, look with me again at verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead and here's what Jesus Christ is called. The first fruits 
of those who have fallen asleep or those who have died in Christ. The resurrected Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. His resurrection is the first fruits resurrection. That means that a guaranteed full harvest of resurrections is coming for those who have fallen asleep in Jesus Christ. And his resurrection is also not just a guarantee, it's an example of what ours will be like. How did Jesus Christ rise? Did Jesus Christ rise from the grave as some kind of spirit? He rose bodily from the grave. And we too will rise bodily from the grave. So stepping back to look at the big picture, Christ's resurrection demands their own because uh, Christ and the believer are connected, they're united, and this connection is like the first fruits uh, of a full harvest that's going to come in. And explaining the connection further, this connection that we have with Christ is to the second Adam. And what Paul's going to do, he's saying, why don't I open the hood and you just look inside here and see what this connection that you have with Jesus Christ, the second Adam, is really like. Uh, Look with me at verse 21. He's explaining further. For as by a man came death. And he's talking about Adam, the first man. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Uh, This verse tells us about two men, two men who what they did affected all all of us, in drastic, enormous ways. And also, you'll note from this verse that it's all about cause and effect. Uh, So looking back at the verse, it says, For as by one man, that's cause, by a man came death, that's effect. And by a man, cause, has come also the resurrection of the dead, effect. In both instances, the effect is traced back to a single man, a human being, and there's emphasis here on their humanity. Turn with me, or I'd ask you to turn to Romans chapter 5, verse 12. I'd like to read this verse in a moment. Uh, here, though, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 21, it says, By a man came death, and that's obviously referring to Adam. Uh, the Bible teaches something very interesting. The Bible teaches that when Adam sinned, we all sinned. We all sinned in Adam. And that may blow your mind a little bit. It may not be the easiest thing to explain, but it's what the Bible says. I've asked you to turn there to Romans chapter 5, verse 12. It reads as follows. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through a man, Adam, and death through sin, And so death spread to all men, and then note this next phrase, because all sinned. When Adam sinned, we all sinned because of our connection with Adam. If you're back there in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 21, it says in like fashion, basically, by a man, a second man, has come also the resurrection of the dead. By one man, Adam came death for all men. When Adam sinned, we all sinned. And by another man, a second Adam, Jesus Christ, came everlasting life. Now look with me at verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. How so? How so? Well, he's, you're connected, he's saying. Just like you're connected with Adam and, and when Adam sinned, you all sinned. 
We're all in Adam by a natural birth. He is literally one of our, our, our first ancestor. We are his descendants, and so we all die. But how are we in Christ? We know how we were in Adam. It's natural. But how is a person in Christ? Well, a person comes to be in Christ or connected to Christ or united with Christ by a second birth, by a spiritual birth. Jesus said in one of the Gospels, in the Gospel of John, he said, you must be born again. Sure, you were born naturally as a son of Adam, but you've got to be born again. Everyone is in Adam, but not everyone is in Christ. But for those who are, this verse says there's going to be a resurrection. And Christ was the first fruits. And just as he rose bodily from the grave, there will be a day when God's people rise bodily from the grave. Does verse 22 teach something called universalism? That everyone will go to heaven. That every person that dies, they will rise bodily and have eternal life. Is that what this verse is teaching? Because it says, in Christ shall all be made alive. Uh, That's not saying that everyone will be made alive to eternal life. It's saying that everyone will be made alive who's in Christ. And verse 23 affirms that with the phrase, those who belong to Christ, those who belong to him by redemption. He has a people who he's redeemed, who he owns, who he's purchased. And those people will be made alive never to die again. One writer said, death came to all those related to Adam by natural birth because of the disobedience of one man. But because of the obedience of another man, resurrection will come to all those related to him by spiritual birth. Are are you related to Jesus Christ? Are you in him? Are you connected to him? We'll talk more about that in a moment. But thinking more about the connection that the believer has to Christ, this connection results in uh, a resurrection order. Verse 22 says, In Christ shall all be made alive. People are going to be made alive as Christ was made alive. What order are the resurrections going to happen in? Verse 23 says this. It says, But each in his own order. Okay, so there's going to be a sequence. Christ, the firstfruits. And then, at his coming, those who belong to Christ. It all starts with Christ's resurrection. Christ rose on the third day. We're talking about something that already happened. There's an empty tomb. Christ is the first fruits. And our bodily resurrection comes next. Verse 22 talks about how believers will rise at the second coming of Christ. Christ rose. He's alive. He's in heaven even now making intercession for us. And the Bible says he's going to come again. And verse 23 says, Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, what? Well, they'll be made alive. The resurrected Christ will return, and when he does, all those who have fallen asleep. What a beautiful term for God's people who have died. Death is not the end. They will be raised, and the full harvest will come in. And then verse 24 says that the end will come. Then comes the end. Christ's resurrection demands our own resurrection. Why? Because Christ and the believer are connected. Just as we're connected in Adam and die, if we're believers and we put our trust in Christ, we've been united with him and his resurrection means ours is coming. This passage has been trying to help us understand why it is that Christ's resurrection demands our own bodily resurrection. And the first reason has to do with this connection that we have to Christ. 
And the second is super awesome. It's incredible. I think just to, to think about it and meditate on it, uh, it will just fill your heart with joy. Reason number two that Christ's resurrection demands our own is because of what the end is like. You want to know why it is that Christ's resurrection demands our own? It's the nature of what the end is like. Verse 24 says, Then comes the end. And the word end there carries the idea of purpose or goal. It's not simply, well, end as in here's the cutoff point or here's the cutoff time or date. Uh, that, that doesn't give you a full enough idea of this word. It's the purpose or the goal. The end, we might say, is, is the consummation All of history, and if you think about redemptive history and God's plan of salvation in particular, all of that is going somewhere. There's a destination. And so we want to ask, what is it? What is the end? What's the destination? What's it like? You might think of uh, the end much like flying in an airplane. When you board a flight, uh, that plane is going somewhere. At least for those of us who travel on planes, we're, we're, we're going, okay, all right, if, if I'm here in Edmonton and I'm at the Edmonton International Airport and I hop on a plane, I've got my boarding pass and it says, we're here in Edmonton and where's our destination? Well, there is one, right? You're going to go somewhere. It's going to take you to a place. And after two or three or eight hours of flying uh, up in the air, the landing gear is going to come out. And that plane's going to descend and the landing gear is going to hit the tarmac and it's going to come to a stop. And then it's going to be guided into the gate. And there you'll be at your destination, whether that be sunny Hawaii or Phoenix or Mexico or wherever the grandkids are at, there's a destination. What is the destination of all of history and all of God's sovereign plan and, it, and his saving of people? What is the destination? When the redemptive plane uh, took off and it headed into the air, where was it going? What's the end like? What will it be like when all of history reaches its consummation and its culmination? And this text is going to tell us in just a few simple words. The last seven words of verse 28, if you skip down there, tell us this. That God, and this is speaking of of not Jesus Christ the Son, but of God the Father. That God the Father may be what? All in all. The Father. Okay. Well, in verses 24 to 28, Paul is making one large, but one very simple argument. And it goes like this. The culmination of history is God the Father being all in all. God the Father, all in all. That's the culmination, which is impossible if death reigns. Christ's resurrection demands our own resurrection because of what the end is like. At the end, the consummation, God the Father will be all in all. I don't even know how to explain that phrase because it's so big, it's so magnificent. According to verse 24, Jesus Christ will take two actions at the end that God may be all in all. He's going to do two things. What are they? Well, Christ will vanquish all of his foes, every single one of them. He will conquer and and, and rend inoperative every rule and every authority and power. 
And after he's done that first action, the second is that Christ will deliver or hand over uh, the kingdom to God the Father. Why? That God may be all in all. Verses 25 to 27 give special attention to the first of those two actions and then verse 28 to the second. The first, Christ will vanquish all of his foes. Look at verse 25. It says, for he, and this is uh, speaking about Jesus Christ, it says, for he must reign, or it is necessary for him to reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. It's necessary. It must be like this until he has, for Christ to reign and to do that until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. Behind the language of Christ putting all of his enemies under his feet is the picture of an ancient king. You think about King Solomon, for example. He's a king in the the line of David, just as Jesus Christ is a king in the line of David. You read your Old Testament, you read about Solomon's throne. It was incredible. I mean, the, the Old Testament just gives us this vivid picture of Solomon's magnificent throne and all the steps that led up to his throne. And there's King Solomon arrayed in all of his glory way up on top of the thing. You go, wow, this guy's important. And as King Solomon would have sat on his throne and, and the people of his kingdom and his subjects would have come into his throne room before that throne and as they would have bowed down before King Solomon and fallen on their faces before his throne and you've got all these steps leading up to it. As they would have fallen down, bowing before him, their heads were below his feet as they bowed and paid homage to their king. The Old Testament also describes conquering kings with their feet on the necks of the kings that they have conquered. That's quite the image. You picture a king and he's got his foot down on somebody's neck. What a picture. Jesus Christ is a reigning king. And this text says that it is necessary he must reign until he has put all things completely and totally under his feet. Verse 25 makes clear that the reign of Jesus Christ is happening now, right now, today. After his resurrection and before his ascension, Jesus said to his disciples, the the Great Commission passage that we're so familiar with in Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus said this, he said, all authority, where? In heaven and on earth has been given to me. By whom? The Father. The Father has given the Son, Jesus Christ, unlimited sovereignty. And make no mistake about it, the resurrected Christ is the reigning King. And His rule began with His resurrection. And and Paul's connecting these dots. He rose, we will too. His rule began with His resurrection and it must continue until every rival to His authority and everything that challenges His authority has been vanquished and completely, once for all, subdued. One of the things that verse 25 implies, though, is that the reign of Jesus Christ is being challenged. It's being challenged right now today. Yes, He's reigning. God the Father has given Him all authority and all power. He's the king. But as of yet, he has not fully put all of his enemies under his feet. They're not yet, we might say, inoperative. They are currently active. And he talks about his enemies, and we go, well, well, who are his enemies? 
Well, the enemies of Christ are many. We can think of a few. Probably the first one that comes to mind is Satan himself. This very moment as we're gathered here, Satan's roaming about as a roaring lion. He's active and he's seeking whom he may devour. Satan is the enemy of Jesus Christ. He hates him. In fact, uh, Genesis 3.15 describes Satan um, as basically a, a snake biting at the heel of the Messiah. Other enemies, we think of the nations. Psalm chapter 2, verse 2 explains that the kings of the earth have, have set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. Where have they set themselves? How have they taken counsel together? Against the Lord, against God the Father, and against it says his anointed, the Messiah, the King. The nations are arrayed against Jesus Christ. The nations are the enemy of Christ. If your hope Your great hope in this life is that the governments and the nations of the world will bow down. That they will arrange themselves under Christ's rightful lordship and authority. Expect to be sorely disappointed. That is yet to come. When Jesus Christ returns, Christ will put the nations under his feet. We sang about it this morning, about him being Lord of the nations. It's coming. It may not be happening now. You're going to be really disappointed if you think it's going to happen today, but it will happen. Other enemies, unbelievers, people who haven't put their trust in Christ. Romans 5 verse 10 and Colossians chapter 1 verse 21 explain that before we came to Christ, before we became his children, We were his enemies because of our sin. And every one of these enemies will be put under Christ's feet. While this text indicates that Christ has many enemies, it doesn't focus on all of his enemies, though. It draws our attention to one enemy of Jesus Christ. And the focus is not Satan or the nations or unbelievers, but death. The last enemy is death. Look at verse 26. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Christ is going to destroy it. When Christ returns, uh, what we read in previous verses is that the dead will be raised up out of their graves and he will triumph over their death and the grave. And that's how he will demonstrate his victory over death for those who belong to him, uh, for those who are his people. I want you to turn with me to the book of Revelation Chapter 20, verses 11 to 15. And maybe as we turn to this text, we could ask a question. How does Christ triumph over death, though, for those who are not in Christ, but only in Adam? For those who are in Christ, he's going to raise us up bodily from the grave. But what about those who are simply in Adam? Well, Revelation chapter 20, I want you to look with me beginning at verse 11, and I just want to read down through the end of the chapter. Beginning in verse 11, Then I saw a great throne, and him who was seated on it, who would that be? That would be Jesus Christ, sitting in judgment. Uh, the scriptures say that the Father has committed all judgment to the Son. Who's on this throne? It's Jesus. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. And from his presence... Earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. 
Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Okay, so so earth and sea, God is raising the dead. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. And then it says, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And then what happened? They were judged. Each one of them, according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Just briefly in summary there, Jesus Christ, we're asking how will he triumph over death for people who have not put their trust in him? Jesus Christ will throw death and unbelievers into the lake of fire. And if you look down at Revelation 21 verse 4, it says that that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. According to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses fi- verse 54, it says, Death is swallowed up in victory. There will be no more death. And Christ will have put his last enemy under his feet. When we think about who is put under Christ's feet, the text clarifies that uh, th- this reign of Christ that I've been speaking of, um, it excludes the Father in this sense. The Father is not put under the Son's feet. Look at verse 27. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain or is clear or evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. And the wording there is a little bit tricky and confusing and trying to figure out who's being referred to. But the idea is that the Father is never put under the Son's feet. And remember, at the end, God the Father will be the one who's all in all. Verses 25 to 27 are quite clear that the reign of Christ is going to reach its consummation and he will put all things, including death, under his feet. And just as we sing, Jesus shall reign where'er the sun doth shine. And then what? I think sometimes we think, well, that's the end. Jesus Christ has put all things under his feet. That's the end. Well, this text says there's more. Something else happens. Christ is going to take two actions. First, he will vanquish all of his foes. And second, after he's done that, Christ will deliver the kingdom to God the Father. That's the second action that verse 24 said Christ will take. And it's expanded on in verse 28. Look at verse 28. It says, when all things are subjected to him, Jesus Christ, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God, the Father, may be all in all. What is the kingdom spoken of here? Well, Jesus spoke of it often. John the Baptist heralded the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And it includes believing individuals. It it includes Christians. 
people who have trusted in Jesus Christ, that they're part of this kingdom. But it also refers to all of God's creation and everything that he has made. Jesus will take his rule over all of his redeemed people and over all of his creation. And he's going to hand that entire rule over to God the Father. The Messiah will bring to completion his work of redemption. And then he will hand over the kingdom to God the Father. And it's done. Why? That God the Father may be all in all. He's the sovereign Lord of history. And as it all begins, you turn to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and what do you read? You read, in the beginning, God. And it's speaking of God the Father. In the beginning, God. And you go all the way to the very end. In the end, God. He will be all in all. And so we ask, why does Christ's resurrection demand our own? Well, look at the end. Because of what the end is like, if death is an undefeated foe, then God is not and will never be all in all. What can we take away from this passage? Well, I think a few things come to mind. I think everyone sitting here ought to ask this question and consider, am I in Christ? Am I... I know everyone's in Adam. He's, he's literally my very first ancestor. I know I'm connected to Adam by natural birth. But am I united to Jesus Christ? Are you in Christ the same way that a branch is attached to a vine? Or have you been born again? And really what it's about is it's about bowing before Christ's lordship now. Everyone's going to bow before this king. But being in Christ means that you've actually bowed now. Jesus Christ came, and the first time he came, it wasn't as exalted, glorious king. We we speak of Christ's first coming in terms of his humiliation, how he left the glories of heaven, and he came to earth, and he humbly died on a cross. There on a cross, the Son of God, Jesus, paid the price for your sins so that you could be in Christ, you could be united to him. And when does that happen? Well, it happens when a person repents of their sins and they put their trust in Christ. I'm a sinner. Jesus died on the cross for me so that I could be forgiven and have eternal life. And, and a person becomes united with, with Jesus Christ when they say, yeah, that's what, that's, I want to be united to Christ. God, would you forgive me of my sins? I cannot save myself. Would you save me through the work of Jesus Christ and, and what, the new birth? happens all, you know, we could try to break up the sequence, but all in that same moment, God, God bring, puts a person in Christ and he gives them new life and faith and forgiveness of their sins. And I just ask, has that ever happened to you? Have you ever gone from simply being in Adam to being in Christ? And if you haven't, it's something that can happen today where you just say, God, I, I am a sinner in Adam. Will you forgive me? Will you make me in Christ? And will you save me by his work? And there you are bowing before Christ's lordship now. He came first in humility. And when he comes again, it's an exaltation and glory. And everything is put under his feet. And second, if you've done that, 
then you should confidently expect bodily resurrection through your connection with Christ and Christ's triumph over all things. Expect it. Hope in it. Life uh, in this cursed world comes with a lot of weight and a lot of burdens and, and it ultimately comes to this point of death. And that's a time of sorrow. That's a time of grieving. There's all this weight and pain under the curse. But if you're a Christian, you can sit in all that and you can look forward and go, this day is coming. When Christ returns and his people will rise with him and there's the end. When he puts this final enemy under his feet. That's the gospel and it's part of his redeeming work. And a third and final application that I think we should all think about is to share Christ with those around you who are under the reign of death. This text is awesome and terrifying all at the same time, depending on which side of Christ you're on. If you're in Christ, you go, wow, this is incredible. The hope, the joy, the confidence, he's going to put all things under his feet and God the Father will be all in all. That's amazing if you're in Christ. But if you're simply an Adam, that's not amazing. That's horrifying. Those who are not raised bodily to eternal life are raised from their graves to be thrown into the lake of fire. And I don't think we want to forget verses like John 3.16 that say to us, for God so loved the world. God's desire is not to, to raise people up and just throw everybody into the lake of fire. We read that God's not willing that any should perish like that but that all should come to repentance in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life be raised in resurrection life. God loved the world like that. Do you and I love the world enough to go, I'll, I'll, I'll go tell him this news about what Jesus has done. God has called us to that mission and to share this wonderful, wonderful news. Christ's resurrection demands our own resurrection. I hope you'll take hope in that. And I hope that you'll share this wonderful, wonderful news. Would you bow your heads with me at this time?